Welcome to the Inspired Wild Podcast. I'm Trevin Stolzfus, and finally, September is here, guys. Finally. Yep. Been, uh, I think I've been going back and forward with Lane on on Instagram and text messages for the past month or so. Like, oh yeah. Hey, what's game plan? What's game plan? What are we doing? Where are we going? It. 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 it, it yeah. I Just, think I annoyed him a little bit. It's <laughs> no. It, it. It takes so long to get here, and then when it's here, and then it's gone. Yeah. So you just got to soak it up. We're here in Colorado. Um, Lane, set the scene here, buddy. Um, we got Omar, we got Lane, and of course myself, and we're in camp. Uh, tell the viewers, or the viewers, <laughs> tell the <laughs> listeners what, I mean, you know, set the scene here. We're sitting in a really cool lodge um, on one of the QRS properties outside of Meeker. Um, for me, it's a little bit different than what I'm used to elk hunting. I'm used to elk hunting back in deep timber, big lodge poles, and this is a lot of oak brush, sage, just a little bit different, but the elk still get in there. They just disappear during the day. The only difference is you can't really hike through this like you could deep, you know, dark timber. You can still kind of get around this. They go bed, and it's like, okay, cool. See you guys when you come out at night because you're not going in there after them. You'd blow them out. Yeah, uh, Omar, have you ever hunted this oak brush country like this? This is my first time hunting in Colorado, period. Oh, okay, okay. So it's it's all new to me. Yeah, so one of the things I like about oak brush is elk, uh, when you're hunting elk and oak brush, they're used to not being able to see each other. So they're very vocal. So they respond to, to vocal cues huh. um, versus uh, you get into some beetle kill or some lodgepole pines, where they can see quite a ways they they respond a little bit differently where they're used to being 10 yards from an elk and they can't see it because of the oak brush because it's six foot eight foot high in some areas but there's nice pockets of aspens here and a little bit of black timber but not much um but it is a unique way to hunt elk and uh the funny thing about how we're hunting is we're doing a lot more glassing because there's so many elk and um so we're glassing to figure out where they're going they'll go into these draws they're going to these little pockets of aspen and then that tells us what we need to do next time to set up you hear you can you hear garrett's toothbrush He's got an electric toothbrush. It's, it's, it sounds like, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so, uh, Omar, uh, introduce yourself. I know a lot of the listeners are going to know who you are, but introduce yourself and how this all came about and, and uh, kind of set the scene there. Well, I go by Crispy, so I don't think anybody's going to know who Omar is. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, this all came about... Uh, Lane and I met at um, ATA. We met at the Badlands Festival. Yep. And um, through a mutual friend, uh, Caleb. And um, we met by the bar, had a couple of drinks, started talking, and saw the film. And, you know, I thought it was pretty awesome, not gonna lie. Um, amazing stuff. And, you know, after that, we all came outside, started talking, and he's like, You need to come get some milk with me. And I was like, Dude, I've never done it. Not even, not with my bow, not in Colorado. You know, the only elk I've ever hunted was in Texas, um, and, and that was it, and it was with my rifle. So when he said that, like, I think I was every other week, like, hey, man, you, you sure we're going to do this? Like, uh, you know, I was just very excited um, for it and, and, and just kind of pumped. And, 
you know, anytime I can get in a different terrain and and really push my body and really see what 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 it's about and, and most definitely just push your body and see how far you can go and how far you can tell your mind that your body can keep going another couple of miles and you got more in you so it's just it's more of more of a mental thing than physical and i love that i love experiencing new places and just trying to push my body a little more every time yeah and your story is a unique one because um you uh were born in mexico yep tell well, t- tell us you, i mean when did you come over uh, you guys came uh, I, I i watched i think uh kill cliff yeah. did a little video and mm-hmm. so i got some background you do but 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 kind of yeah. uh, uh do a flyover of of your story yeah um so my father um became a citizen when he was young and you know he served in the army and all that stuff and my met my mother down in mexico they got married um you know and then i was born and then my brother and my sister and um you know just like every migrant that does it my dad was working in the u.s was sending money back to mexico and he kind of got tired of it he's like you know why can i have my family here i served i i work i pay taxes like i want my family here with me so um he started the process and 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 you know we eventually came over when i was about nine years old and um became i became a citizen when i was a sophomore in high school and that's kind of when 9-11 happened um, I think I had become a citizen like two weeks prior to 9-11. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I was proud to be an American. I was very excited that I had given, I was, I, I was given an opportunity to become anything that I wanted in this country. And so were my siblings. And when 9-11 happened, I think I was probably one of four kids in that classroom that was crying because um, I knew what had happened. <clears throat> and I felt it. I felt it because I knew I was an American. And, and it just hurt to see other people you know, being hurt that way. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was, uh, a very good football athlete or, or player. And, um, I had offers for a couple of different universities and ultimately I, um, I ended up joining the service <clears throat> just cause that's kind of what I had in the back of my head since my sophomore year. It was always there. I mean, I put it, you know, I put it behind in the back of the head, hidden somewhere there, but Every single time when it was time to make a decision to go to a school, it will pop back up. And, right. you know, it was just a, a, one of those things. And, and I talked to my father about it. And my dad kind of said, well, this is my this was my experience. He's like, you know, I didn't get to go to war, but we got ready. He's like the day and he was um, during the desert storm time. He was a tanker and um, his unit was uh, up next to go deploy. And then the war ended. So <clears throat> they never left the States, never got called up. Um, so, but he walked me through what he had experienced. He said, you got to be ready for this. You know, it's, it's a big commitment. Make sure it's something you want to do. It's like, you know, you have an opportunity to go play collegiate football, something that none of us have ever done in our families, your mom and mine. He's like, so you definitely make the decision you want to make. So ultimately my dad let me choose what I wanted to do. And it, it was just a calling. Um, I knew I wanted to do that. I, you know, a lot of people always come up to us and then they tell us, you know, that we signed a blank check to this country. And I felt the opposite way. I felt like this country gave me a blank check to do anything I wanted. And I wanted to repay that. I wanted to um, secure my brother and my sister's freedoms, make sure that they got to go do what they wanted to do and then have to have some terrorists come over here and do something to them and jeopardize their lives. So it was very family driven and, and community driven and just 
you know, it was, it's, we got sucker punched and I wanted to go do something about it. So that's ultimately what made me join the service. Now, did you ever have it in the back of your mind? You'd go, you'd serve, then come back, maybe play football again? No. Once I joined um, and once I, I got through basic training and I graduated, it was one of those where I knew I was going to be a lifer. I oh, okay. Was, okay. I had made up my mind that I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do, go, you know, be in the infantry, um, get a couple of years under my belt, and then I wanted to move into the special operations units and, and retire there. Um, so I, I had a plan after that. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Did your athletic, uh, uh, comp- competitive spirit really help you? Not <laughs> not just through basic, but as you as you honed in on that goal, was that part yeah. of what oh, you yeah. tied into? I mean, when I got to basic training, um, you know, you have guys that probably never ran in their lives or weren't athletes, and um, you know, one of the assessments there is a two mile run, and then push ups and sit ups, and. Uh, I think I I had the company record um, for about two weeks. Um, I, I beat everybody. I was just back and right, forth. Right. And then, you know, there was a week where I just didn't want to run. I was like, I'm taking my time and someone else will beat me and whatnot. But it helped me out a lot. I mean, I, I showed up in, in, uh, in very, very good shape. I was about 190 when I showed up there and then graduated like at 180. So I didn't lose a lot. There was guys that showed up like at... 220 and we'll leave it like at 170 you know they really? lose a lot of weight and, and <laughs> those are the guys that hardest they had it the, the hardest and um not me you know i was used to it and go growing up in south texas where it's it's hot and humid and all that and it's just forbidding georgia is the same thing it's the same weather um didn't really play an impact on me it was just very easy um uh to, to get used to those things just the running and the pushups that stuff was easy to me everything else was it was hard so when you went in the service were you i think we talked about this earlier but you didn't grow up hunting no you know so no not really um the only thing we we did in south texas was bird hunt it was it was uh, it's it's affordable um that is one of the, the the things about my state that um i'm not very uh pumped about is that 98% of Texas is privately owned. Um, So you either got to get a lease and if you lease a place, it's super expensive. Or if you want to go hunt somewhere for a weekend, it's expensive as well. Um, So the only thing that we had was bird hunting because all you needed was property. And we had friends around town that were like, come shoot them. Yeah. Yeah. We we don't care. So we would dove hunt quite a bit, but never, never whitetail, never any other sort of animal. Um, till, you know, after, after I got injured and whatnot, I got invited to go out with a friend at his property and that they needed uh, a couple of does gone and went out and, um, man, it was, uh, it was, it was a surreal moment because, you know, in the service we're trained, um, to kill, at least in my job, you know, it's, it's very second nature. You get out and you know, this doesn't take much to put that, that gun on fire and do what you do when you come back and, you know, you get a little bit of adrenaline and that's it. But when it's, it's chasing an animal, and that's not when I'm, I've never been trained to do that, it's different. Your adrenaline kicks back up. You're pumped. You're, you're ready to go. You start getting that buck fever, even though if, if it's a doe, you're just excited. And, you know, I wasn't wired to do that. So the first time that I went out, it was just, uh, it, it was a surreal experience. I was like, man, I'm here. I'm in this meat. I'm going to eat it. And I'm in the outdoors and it's very soothing to me and uh, very therapeutic. And, you know, there was just so many things that made me feel 
like I belong, I guess mm. you can say, you know, after getting out of the service. Um, because, it, it, you know, in hunting, it doesn't matter if, if you're small, skinny, big, fat. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, whatever. Um, the animal out there doesn't care where you come from, what your status is, how much money you have or don't have. Like, none of that matters. Right. And I found that in the hunting industry, there's a lot of people that think alike, a lot of great people that, that are, you know, salt of the earth type people. And and, and it, it I've noticed it, how the community is so tight and, and everybody is so close to one another. So that gave me uh, another sense of purpose. It's like, man, these, these people are like, you know, they're like families. I haven't experienced this since I got out of the service. And, uh, you know, you sit around camp and you start listening to someone that's been hunting for 40 years tell your story about, you know, the best buck that they shot from the hip or, you know, they shot the biggest animal with just iron sights or, you know, they, they shot an elk with, with no sights. It was just with a recurve. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, so listening to all those stories um, was very therapeutic to me. And then, and, and as I did it um, that weekend, I, I was hooked. I was like, I, I want to do this somewhere else. And, you know, being an adult, I, and not having kids and a family, you know, I had a little bit of extra money in my pocket and I was like, I'm going to get a dearly somewhere. And, you know, went in on it with a bunch of other friends and, and then we started hunting and and it's just, it just grew, man. Like it was night and day. I just fell in love with it and everything about it. And I would sit at home and look at YouTube videos and learn how to how to plant a, a plot and how to, you know, do all that cool stuff right. and where to set up your blinds and uh, put a, where to put a tree stand and how to track animals and, and all that stuff. So, I, you know, and watching a bunch of, much of different TV shows. Um, I, I learned a lot and, you know, I was just hooked and here we are today and I still get excited. I'm still pumped. I, you know, I haven't really hunted outside of Texas much and just being out of here, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, every, every five seconds we were in there, I, I kept telling Lane, like, you hear that? What is that? And I'm like, I thought I heard something. Right. And, you know, I just kind of like, it felt like I was hunting for the first time again. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Take us back to, um, to the accident. Cause we talked about, you, you mentioned how therapeutic this is. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, you've told this story many, many times, Yeah. but I, I want to make the connection of what you went through, mm -hmm. uh, the resolve, how it made you change and then how hunting has tied in and and how you've you know yeah we talked about it a little bit last night coming <laughs> back from glass and and i i just thought that was you you explained that so well i just wanted you to kind of if you could reiterate that yeah yeah so um may 14 2007 um you know went out on patrol like any other day and um everything seemed fine till we started getting engaged with the enemy and, um, you know, your, your training kicks in, you go do what you got to do. And, um, unfortunately we, we rolled up on, uh, on this just piece of road that I was like, man, there's, there's something weird about this road. And before I could process everything, you know, we, we, we've been there about 11 months. So I knew the area like the back of my hand and that, that bump that didn't make any sense. So it was, that's what they had planned at the IED. Mm. IED goes off right underneath the vehicle. Um, they had planted uh, 200 pounds of explosives from one house through the street, and they, they dug a tunnel, and you know they, they blew us up. Um, unfortunately, lost two guys that day. Um, 
I stayed in the truck a little longer than I should have to start giving support by fire because we still had two other guys that needed to get pulled out. They eventually got out. Um, and just because I stayed in the truck a little longer, um, I, I got pretty badly burned. 75% um, of the body, third and fourth degree burns. And at the time, I only had my foot partially amputated, my right foot. Um, so it's kind of like, um, you know how diabetics just get their toes cut off and they have the rest of their foot. That's right. what I had from a grenade that went off when I was getting out of the vehicle. Um, it exploded and just peppered my whole right side and ultimately I had to get that taken out. And we, I went about nine years, I want to say, uh, yeah, nine years with it. And I did a 25 mile hike with some friends just cause on sunny day and, um, Got home and my uh, my wound had opened up on my foot and I was like, dang it, you know, there we go. So at this point, you know, I'm already I've had like 99 surgeries, so I'm I'm used to taking care of myself, wound care, all that stuff. It's right. it's second nature, and so I was packing it. I was in all these things, and finally, <laughs> my girlfriend, fiance, now was like, you need to go to the doctor and get that checked out. And I was like, I'm fine, honey. She's like, no, seriously, it hasn't healed. It's been six months. You need to go get that checked out. And I said, okay. So I went back. We actually ended up, um, went on, on under. And they went in there. They were going to just, you know, um, stitch it back up and make sure everything was okay. But they ended up finding cancer on my foot, which was a local cancer that I had before. That's why they had amputated my toes. Mm. But it was from all the chemicals and everything in Iraq, you know, that nasty stuff. And that's the reason why my foot was not healing. And uh, that's the doctor was like, this is why you keep getting sick so often. And I was like, oh, wow. So we went in there. They took all the cancer out and um, came back out. And the doctor's like, man, there's still some there. We want to come back and get it. And I said, fine. So that was a hundredth surgery. And then wow. 101, they go in there and they, you know, they close me up. They stitch it up. They, everything was gone. Um, but they took so much meat from my foot that it couldn't heal. It was just bones and whatever was left there. So when I came off my cast and I went to take a step for the first time, it had just split open again. And um, I was just frustrated because at this point I've been in a wheelchair for three months and I'm a very active going guy. Like I can't sit still at all. And uh I was very disappointed. I was in a lot of pain and very frustrated. And, um, you know, I looked at her and I said, I think I've made the decision. I'm going to cut my leg off. And she goes, you think that's going to be, you know, you're going to have a, 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 um, a good result. Is this going to be better? Is it going to be a better uh, a life, a quality of life for you? And I said, yeah, 100%. And she's like, well, let's do it. So we ultimately both made the decision and, um, this was on a Friday that I walked into the doctor's office and, you know, he's looking at my foot and he goes and grabs another doctor and they both come in, they look at it, they both step out and they come back in. And I said, can you just cut the damn thing already? I'm like, let's do this. And they're like, that's what we were going to tell you. I said, cut it off. Like, I don't care. And I was like, I'm ready. <laughs> right. Because so, you had had so much problems and you were just ready to move on with your life exactly like i was just like you know what let's get over the speed bump and keep going and uh so that was on a friday and the doctors were like well enjoy your weekend um have fun you know go out with your family and stuff and we'll see you monday uh I'll be here at five in the morning you're gonna go in at six and i was like cool showed up at five you know got all the paperwork done and do all that stuff and the doctor came out with with that 
amazing cocktail and put it in my line and he uh he bet me a steak dinner there he always does it's the same guy that i've done a lot of my surgeries he goes if you can count down to five he's like i'll take you out on a steak dinner and the most expensive place here in town i'm like hell yes i'm always like 10, 9, 8, and I just pass out. Like, I can never get past 7. <laughs> so they put me out and woke up. And, um, you know, I woke up in a little bit of pain. Um, but I felt relief overall when I woke up. And I had the amputation on a Monday and on a Friday. I got to go home and and, and began to real heal, heal up and, and, and get ready for that next step. And that was, like, August 30th. And um, I was scheduled to be on a prosthetic the third week of December. I was actually in a prosthetic and walking the first week of November because I was, I was determined, um, took care of the wound a lot. Um, started, yeah, you had experience with that. So, yeah. So that was huge. Just changed a lot of things. I, I started eating very clean, um, you know, did paleo for like four months uh, after that. Um, just no drinking, no tobacco, nothing, just clean as it gets water. I even cut out sugar, which was, it's crazy to me now. Cause uh, I love chocolate, but cut out the sugar and man, I healed up fast. It was crazy. I healed up super fast. And the doctor's like, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> like, right. um, I cut all these things out and they're like, well, it's working. Keep it up. And, you know, I got an prosthetic, started walking and, um, um, you, you know, I just wanted to move on. I wanted to get going. What was the hardest thing when you got your prosthetic? Your prosthetic. Prosthetic. Thank you. <laughs> I want to say prophetic, but that's not what we're going to talk about. Prosthetic and, and the training that you had to do, because basically you're having to relearn to walk. Yeah. What was the hardest thing? You know, it wasn't hard at all uh, because I, I've been around friends or amputees for nine years. So I used to go to their appointments. So I, I always paid attention to what the doctors would tell them on how to walk, all that. So when I got my prosthetic, I already knew what I was doing. Oh. So I was I started walking. They're like, dude, you're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the hardest thing for me, though, was um, getting uh, remembering that I didn't have a leg and I needed to put my leg on to walk. And there's a couple of times where I wake up at night and go to the bathroom and I take a step and I take another step and there's nothing there to take a step with. And then I tumble down. <laughs> that happened a couple of times. Um, I remember woke up one night and I took a spill and I just laid there and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to sleep right here. Fell asleep on the ground. And uh, <laughs> my fiance was looking for me and she's like, you know, where the heck is he at? And she couldn't feel me in the bed. And um, she got up and, she, you know, she went around to go see if I was okay. And she bumped me on the ground. I was like, oh, hey, I'm down here. And she's like, what are you doing there? And I was like, well, I fell going to the bathroom. I forgot to put my leg on. And uh, I was so tired. I just stayed down here. And she's like, get in bed. And I was like, okay. So I got up and, and got in bed. But that was um, that was probably the hardest thing was remembering that I had cut it off and I needed to put it on and walk to the bathroom. <laughs> wow. Well, I see, I would have never thought of that. I mean, I, but it makes total sense because all your life you've just, you got to yeah. go to the bathroom, just get up and go. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that, that was the hardest part. Well, as you started to recoup, I know that you uh, have helped. You're very involved with even helping other people that have been injured that uh, 
we talked a little bit about PTSD mm-hmm. and some of that stuff and, and your desire to not sit on the sidelines. Don't worry about me. Let me help somebody else. That's yeah. kind of your attitude. When did, did you find that that, did you got involved right away in that or did you have to go through a healing period yourself? Yeah, I definitely went through um, a, a healing process on my own. Um, you know, it's just, it's very, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster because, you know, here I was this 18 year old or I was 21 years old on that deployment. Um, and, you know, here you are, you're on top of the world. You're just this belly badass and, and nobody can stop you. And you're really good at your job. And, um, you know, you got the world on your feet and you just feel invincible. And all of a sudden, all that's taken away from you. And here you wake up and you're like, well, I'm missing limbs and mm-hmm. my skin's messed up. And I probably not going to be able to do my job ever again. And I think that is the hardest thing I dealt with, not being able to do my job and not being with my guys because I felt like me getting wounded was letting them down mm. um, and, and and survivor's guilt. You know, you go through through all that. One of my best friends died in the truck with me that day. And, you know, he's married, had a kid, um, a beautiful wife. And here I was, this 21-year-old guy that was single. Why couldn't, why couldn't our places have been traded? Like, you know, yeah, it would have sucked for my family, but... They would have been okay. My dad would understand. You know, I think my mom would probably be the one that would have taken it the hardest. Um, but, you know, you, you start thinking about that. And, 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 and our brain is the strongest muscle that we have. And when you let that consume you, it, it, it's game over. Right. And uh, I was going down that rope, down that road. And, um, you know, it, it was, it took a lot. It took hanging out with a couple of friends, realizing things. It took, um, me actually going back to Iraq and flying over the spot where I was injured to realize that, you know, uh, life's great. You know, I'm here for a reason. Um, so I dealt with all that, man. I, and, and it was it was a dark time in my life. And I never showed it. I was always, you know, when I wake up, I was always happy and smiling. and like, all right, let's get after it. And I go work out and do PT and just try to be as positive as I could. And then but when I got home and I laid in that bed, you know, I would cry, I'd be mad, I'd be angry. Um, just so many emotions and, and, and depression would kick in, but I never really showed it to anybody. And when, when I went back um, and realized that there was nothing that we could have done different that would have changed the events of that day. And that helped me out a lot. And then, you know, I got invited to go hunt with some friends and, you know, going out and hanging out and, and hunting and then coming back and cooking some backstraps and just being around good old people um, really cleansed my soul and really made me appreciate life. And, you know, I sat there and, you know, I was I was in a, in a tree stand and the sun was going down and it was just beautiful Texas sunset. And um, I think I, I, I made peace with God that day. I was like, cause I was very mad at him for a long time mm. for, um, you know, losing, letting him um for him letting 15 of my friends get killed you know but it wasn't him this is what was supposed to happen and um you know i think i found peace and i i think i i i just kind of asked for forgiveness for being mad for so long and and then after that man you know um i kind of wanted to do more i've always wanted to do more um and i felt like helping other people was was the right thing to do and you know when when you serve you have you know you have a mission 
Um, but when you get out, you know, that mission changes, but the statement's still the same thing. So, mm. it, you know, I might have stopped serving my country, but it doesn't mean I, I stopped serving my community. You can always serve through your community. And that's what I wanted to do. I saw a lot of guys that needed help, that um, that I knew how to get to them because I had been there before. And I feel like, you know, I, I can relate with a lot of these guys. And not only that, um, I started working with a lot of burn kids uh, because... Mm. If anybody knows what they're going through, it's me. I've been through it and um, and experienced it. But I took a lot of interest in those kids because when I got injured, I was 21 years old. So I lived a normal life. I played sports. I was in the newspapers. I was that athlete in school. You know, I went to the service, did all that stuff, came home. You know, they did the, 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 the cheerleader and, and all that stuff. I did all that. And when I got injured as an adult, I was able to cope with it a lot better. But these kids who are nine, 10 years old, kind of grow up their whole lives with those scars. And let's be brutally honest, these kids nowadays are assholes. They're bad. Right. And um, so if I can be a mentor for those kids when they're having a bad day and they can't talk to their mom or dad, they have me. They have my number. They can call me and be like, I'm self-conscious about my burns because their parents can't relate to it. Right. Now, they're going to be sympathetic about it, yes, because it's their child, but they can't relate to what they're going through, how they're being seen by others, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I step in, and I started taking some of these kids hunting as well, and we go in, and do football trips and, and, and all these other things. And, um, you know, as much as I was helping others, I think it was helping me. I think mm. it was giving me a, a different mission, a different... Um, sense of purpose like i felt like i finally felt why my life was spared and then why i need to be here um so it was it was it was just rewarding to to be able to do all those things for others and not ever expect anything back but i think i get more out of it than the actual people that i help wow that is such a outward focused attitude <laughs> and and you're right you're receiving stuff back in 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 duplicate sometimes perhaps because of you serving i've seen that to be true of of, of other situations too when people look outside of themselves and go to serve someone versus I want to be. I want to be served, or For I sure. need to be fixed. They go to try and help somebody else. It actually comes back and helps them. Yeah. So, well, and yeah. your your sense of humor. I mean, <laughs> it, you you maintained your sense of humor through this all, and I'm. It had to have played a huge part in in your recovery. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, dark humor is. Uh, I think it, it's 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 a great medicine, um, because you know if you're able to look at your injuries. And not let them own you, but you own your injuries. I think it, it plays a huge role. When you can make fun of it, you know, it, you're taking that power away from that to to do whatever it's going to do. You know, yeah, can I can I go home and sit at home and cry all day because I don't have a leg and, I'm you know, my body's burnt 75% and, you know, I, I don't operate like everybody else does? Yes, 100%. I can let that consume me, but... What's the point? You know, we're here for a short time. Right. Why not? Why not use my story to inspire one person out of a hundred in a room? If you can change one life, why not? You know, it's just that's just the way I've always been. And I think joking and and, and laughing about it and and just you know not taking it too too hard. It's just you know 
take these injuries very lightly. Right. It is what it is. There's nothing I can do to change it. There's nothing that anybody can do to make him go away. So why not make fun of it, you know? Right. And and like you said, it takes the sting out of it because you're you're in control. Yeah. And um, And it probably makes other people who are maybe a little bit uneasy puts them at ease for sure and so therefore you are able to make a connection on a deeper level i uh i gotta say man you're an inspiring guy you're an inspiring guy and 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 so it's this is a great i'm so glad that lane's you know you guys got together and set this up because it's funny when we met the first thing i said i turned around it was you and caleb and luke sitting together yeah and i turn around i look at luke and i go Luke, hold on. I was like, hey, you're crispy, right? You're like, yeah. I was like, you are a goddamn inspiration, dude. It's like, I don't swing from guys' nuts, but I'll swing from yours all day long. I was like, you're an inspiration. That's the first thing I said to him. He just starts laughing. He's like, all right, cool. Thanks, dude. And then we met up at the bar later. Yep. Yeah. 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 Because he is. Yeah. yeah. I, he, he really is. I mean, me coming from the fire service, I work with great dudes all the time. Um, great people all the time. And it yeah, you're, you're just a step up, dude. You're, you're a step above. I, uh, I don't know about all that. Well, I, I say uh, it, it's a privilege for us because to share, not just to share elk hunting with you, but to share your elk hunting. So we get to be a part of something. Are you kidding me? I'm like, I'm learning from from some of the guys out there that know how to do it. Like, I've never done this before. So, But, but sometimes like... I feel privileged being L- here. Lane and I get... I think, and I, I maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but we've been hunting elk for so long, you take things for granted. Oh, totally. And so then, today, like hiking down, right. he's like, hey, did you hear that? I was like, yeah, dude. Like, I heard it. And I was, I was like, <laughs> this is his first time elk hunting here. So, yeah. yeah. This, this is, this is awesome. Work. Like last night, sitting up there watching those bulls, uh, I mean, oh, all yeah. those elk file out of that, that draw, and you're just like, whoa, well, I've seen that before. And so it's it's really it's like taking a kid hunting yep. for the first time in a, in a way <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know yeah. and seeing something so it's it's pretty uh, it, it's kind of humbling man. in it's a fun. way for me because I think I take things for granted. Well, I think we all do. I think um, you know I think if you guys were to come down to South Texas with me and then I'll take you guys deer hunting and just be like eh, whatever like you know what I mean like I do that every year so it's just one of those things where. We're accustomed to it, I think. And um, yeah, we we take things for granted. I think we all do. That's just the nature of being a human. Like, you know, we take AC for granted. We take oh, yeah. the ability to hot have water. water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't have, we, we, yeah, <laughs> the, the hot water heater here is out on the fritz. So we're all. Listen, I'm burnt. I take cold showers. So uh, to it me, it doesn't matter. matter. It don't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Um, you were telling us about that, how you had with your dad. Yeah. up in Alaska and one thing that I think is special about elk is just the size they're yeah. such big animals and then of course you take that step up to a moose <laughs> and, yeah. and share I, a little I went backwards I should have gone elk and then moose yeah. <laughs> share a little bit how that, that that was a unique story how that hunt came about and you got to share it with your dad yeah yeah so um, the, the garrison commander of that post is a friend of mine who, who took over and you know, they, they get uh, X amount of tags that only um, the soldiers on base can hunt. And where exactly? Remind me where Fort that's. Fort Greeley. And that's outside of. Of Fairbanks. Okay, Fairbanks. It's, it's kind of okay. north Alaska. of it. Yeah. Alaska. In Alaska. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of his soldiers are like, 
they're they're it's funny because a lot of the guys that are there they're stationed from other parts of the country and a lot of guys that are stationed there are puerto rican guys and they don't hunt at all you know i mean they're from the islands they don't they don't hunt right, they don't, sure. they, they've never had that around um so he's like man i don't know what to do with these tags and he's like why don't you come up let me give you a tag let's go hunt let's do this and and we did and we started a program now he brings other wounded guys or or disabled veterans out there and they get to use the moose tag and you're talking about like i can't even i, I might be misquoting this but it was something in the hundred thousand acres that the army owns out there and the locals can't hunt it because it's military installation right. private land and so i think the moose know this and he got all these huge i mean moose walking around and, and the locals see them and they're just they're mad that they can't hunt them because they're, they're they're huge um so i got to go do that and um i asked my buddies like, man, can i bring my, my my father with me and can we film this and they're like absolutely so it was my father and my camera guy, and um, you know my father and I had never really hunted um, big game like that ever before, or, or even I mean now that we're older, I've been able to go hunt uh, whitetail and axes with him, but we had never done a big game like that, and having him there was just uh, man, it was surreal just because it was kind of like going back to high school where I knew that my parents were in the stands. And I wanted to make them proud. I wanted to like, I wanted my dad to be in that stand and be like, that's my son who just did that. Um, and that's kind of what, what translated out there. I wanted my dad to see, uh, you know, that moose and, and then us clean it and harvest and pack it out and all that. And it was, uh, it was amazing, man. Like my, when I shot that moose, I turned around and like my dad had the biggest smile on his face and like, we like hugged it out like we broke out like like we'd never <laughs> done that before like you know we, yeah, every time i see him i give him a hug and a kiss but that that was a little different like it was there was a lot of emotions there was just excitement it was just like i felt like he was proud like right. just so many things and like man it, it it felt good to have him there like i was just like man this is i said dad we got to come back to alaska and just keep doing different things out here and he's like i'm in um so but it was man such a surreal moment like i can't wait till you know the day that i have kids and 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 i'm able to uh take them out there and watch them take their first animal and um lane and i talked about it when we were in the blind you know he was showing me videos of his kids and you know they're, they're shooting their their uh, bow and arrows at, at targets and you know his son shooting a bird and <laughs> going and collecting it and all that stuff and you know you sit back and I was like man that's awesome like I can't wait to have a, 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 a son or a daughter right. and, and you know hopefully they, they they fall in love with with hunting like it's not something that I want to push on them or you know force them to do it because if, if they don't love it there's no point of doing it but um yeah, can't wait to share that with them, just like my dad shared that with me. So when you go on something like that and you film it, you're doing a bunch of YouTube stuff now, yeah. right? And so tell us about that and what, what you got going on there, because that's pretty exciting. You've you've only been doing it for how long? What, like two months. <laughs> you've been doing it for two months, and yeah. you're, you're killing it. <laughs> I don't know why people like watching my videos. It's just me talking nonsense. Um, yeah, so YouTube is... Uh, 
you know, I, I put it I put it aside for a while. I didn't really want to do it. I was like, I don't want to put a camera in front of me. And I finally broke down one day and I have all these friends who are huge YouTubers and they got millions of subscribers and they're like, dude, do it, do it. Come on, man, just do it. And I did a video with, with a couple of them and I said, you know what, let's do it. And I did it and um, it's it's been crazy because just in that short amount of time, like we're almost at 21,000 subscribers and the feedback and people are like put out another video you got to put out another video i'm like well, hold on i just put this one out like right. <laughs> give me a minute um so that working on that we're, we're working on, on putting out more content for everybody i just kind of got to find a camera guy in my area um that's flexible and 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 go from there and then try it, to put out more content the logistics are hard huh yeah they are they are oh yeah so yeah and, and, a lot and, of respect and you wanna, to those guys yeah and you want to put quality content out for you, sure you, yeah you, you, know, you don't want to just you don't want to do it for just from your yeah, phone like, yeah, yeah you know and and so it, it, it with that a situation like that where you're putting out stuff and people would you ever have thought going back to high school would you ever have thought there was going to be this thing where you could <laughs> literally just talk you could sit have an opinion about something talk about it, and people would consume it on a computer, I mean, yeah. you, if you look at YouTube and then look, think back, to me, it, it's, it, it, I, I it would is. never have guessed it's it was crazy. Gonna... Like, it's same thing. It's like with Instagram. Like, I remember when I started my Instagram a couple of years ago and, you know, I was, I had probably a hundred followers and they were all my friends. Right. <laughs> and I had a hundred followers and I follow a hundred people. Right. Like, that was it. And I, I never, I, I didn't do anything out of the ordinary. That, I didn't think I was doing anything out right. of the ordinary, but, you know, I started powerlifting and then I started in the, the hunting and then I started doing motivational speaking as, as living. And I started doing all these things in, in the community and everywhere I went where people were like, hey, how can I find you online? I was like, well, I'm on Instagram, I'm crispy. And... That, that took off, you know, next thing I know, I was like, oh, sh oh, you know, I got 10,000 followers. Holy crap. Like, this is crazy. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm doing like a giveaway for 100,000 followers because I was like, this is insane. And, you know, next thing I know, Instagram like gets a hold of me and they're like, hey, um, we just want to let you know there's a lot of fake profiles out there being made with, with your stuff. We're going to go ahead and verify you. And I'm like... What's verified? <laughs> like, you had no idea what that was. <laughs> I was like, what does all that mean? And they're like, you know that little blue check mark that people have on the side? I was like, cool. So I looked it up and, you know, I Googled it. I was like, what does verified mean? And it says something along the lines of like being a celebrity or something like that. And I was like, I'm, I'm not an actor or a musician or why do they want to verify me? And right. But I wasn't going to fight it and then that happened and then after that, I mean, it just started blowing up and, you know, we're at, we're at now and, um, and, and the constant messages every day of people being inspired and being, and, you know, being motivated and I can't tell you how many messages I get from guys that, um, either send me pictures when they graduated basic training or they're going to basic training. They're like, dude, I'm doing it because you, you inspired me to go. Like I was hesitant and then now I, you know, I joined and I'm like, that's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm happy that I can motivate and inspire the, the future uh, of this country, the, the soldiers that are going to be there when my generation retires. Right. Um, and it's just, it's very humbling, man, because you start reading some of these stories and, and you know, that some of them get to me. Like, uh, there was one that made me cry a while back. There was this, um, this gentleman who's a pastor that follows me and um, him and his wife were in Indonesia and they were by the beach and you know they got in the water 
the water got rough and swept them in and his wife drowned and died and it it put it pulled him out and you know he was in the middle out there he was drowning he was dying and you know he's telling me this whole story and he goes and in the middle of all that something in my head just kept saying crispy on crispy on crispy on and i swam back to shore and he's like He's like, and I don't know if it was it was you and God at that moment. He's like, but because of that, and you're saying, he's like, I'm here today, and I was I'm reading this, and I'm like, like, right. and and my fiance is like, what are you? Why are you crying? And I show it to her, and she's like, oh my God, and she's like crying and hugging me, and I was just like, this is the most touching thing I've ever read online, and I was like, and it wasn't even like a validation of the stuff that I put out. But it was it was one of those moments where I realized that I got to be careful in what I put out because there's people that are looking at it and could be inspired or can they can be pushed away from the stuff that I put out. Um, so um, I realized that it's it's a job um, to make sure that I put out the right content out there because I have a lot of kids that follow me and I, I got to make sure that you know that I'm a good example for those kids because. You know, they're, they're going to grow up and that that could be the difference of like, you know, man, that guy works hard and he does a lot of good stuff. Like, I want to do that. Right. Or I can be the guy that's on there like, oh, look at me, you know, doing drugs and doing all this crazy stuff. And like, life's so cool. And then kids are like, well, I want to do that. Like, he's doing it. I want to do it. And you lead these kids in a bad way. Um, so it was, it, it's, man, it's been crazy. I, I, I never in a million years that I think that I was going to have the power of playing a small role in people's lives well one of the things i and i'm just i'm not an expert i'm not a psychologist i'm not a doctor but i did stay at a holiday Inn express once (laughs) um you are honest i think that comes true like your the honesty of what you share comes from the heart it's not some mumbo jumbo it's either life experience yeah Okay, or it's um, something that got you through a hard time and you're able to open up and share that and people connect with that. And yeah. that's the honesty. And uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's pretty unique. In today's <laughs> day and age where Instagram, if you look at Instagram, it, and I, I, have an, I have Instagram, I, we have it for the show Outback Outdoors, you know, we, we, it's almost a necessary evil, right? Yeah, yeah. But... When you think of Instagram, you think of Insta famous. You think all this, and it's these people that are trying to be something they're not. Yeah. Where you are being exactly who you are and inspiring <laughs> people, and I think that's the key. I think that's that. That's where it translates. It's growing like wildfire because people want that. They want truth. They yeah. want honesty, and they want to know how do I get out of this funk or this trial or this tough time. You've lived it, brother. So you can at least give them good tools to guide them. So I applaud that. I applaud that. Thanks. Now we just got to get them a big old L. Heck yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> Tomorrow morning we are uh, we have a good game plan. Yeah, I think we do. That I I I kind of told them tonight walking out. I was like, dude, I'm kind of happy you didn't kill something tonight because the way we're gonna hunt tomorrow morning, if everything goes right is so awesome well, why don't and you it's what's so addicting sure well, yeah that, and, and you're you're 100 like um sitting in a blind is fine with me i do it in 
I've done it in Texas my whole life. Like I, 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 the, my whole time that I've been hunting doesn't bother me at all, but I want to hike. I want to get by a tree and call them in and just watch them as a full draw and just, right. you know, I want to get that experience. Like I've seen all these hunting videos from you guys and everybody else of chasing elk and doing it like outside. And that's what I want. You know, even though <laughs> the first 20 minutes we start walking, I'm dying. And then I finally get acclimated. Like, all right, let's keep going. <laughs> it's different. But <laughs> what, what, you, you're at what? Oh, Six, that elevation. 800? Something no, like 1600. 1600. Yeah. And we're at 82, I think. 82, is, yeah. Is what yeah. we looked at. Yeah. So there's a huge difference. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I don't think you start feeling what's so like six, maybe? Or is it, is it five or six? The you, difference? Will you start really feeling it? Oh, I people think. feel it when they come to Denver. I'll I'll run at least a medical, like a couple of medical calls a month of people that fly into Denver and they have altitude sickness at fifty two eighty. What do you do for that? Uh, hydration. I what do I do? I give them to the ambulance and I say I'm fine. <laughs> but uh, basically, hydration, um, hydrate and acclimation. And if it gets really bad, they're gonna have to go on oxygen and help with that. And if you get really bad, um, they'd have to go into a bariatric chamber oh wow um normally you won't see that at 5200 that's not normally what but yeah i will we stopped at walmart like and i bought one of those air things you know those yeah yeah Yeah, i I was like i'm gonna get one of these just Just in in case case. (laughs) i left it in the truck i'm fine well yeah i think you'll be fine tomorrow i I, uh today just to get the listeners so they understand you guys there's a there's a couple spots the way we hunt here where water cover and feed those are your three basics well we have all of a lot of all of that here so and a lot of elk <laughs> so we're trying to go okay what's going to what's what are they keying on what's the limiting factor you guys went sat water this morning nothing didn't didn't have any elk come in we saw a couple of mule deer. Yeah, we did. We saw some, some nice mule deer. deer. They were nice. And um, then tonight, you guys saw, sat on a wallow, which we know for a fact has been getting hammered because you walk in there and you could literally see the hair on the sides of where they're wallowing. Um, but they didn't come in tonight. We, on the other hand, Garrett and I, worked to the back, uh, I guess. I guess you would call it the back of the property. I mean, it's really towards uh, the flat tops. Um, and Q, Quentin Smith with QRS, who uh, runs this whole place, he said, there's been a bull, bull bugle back there. He's got a couple of cows, and he's got him a honey hole. So we went looking. We were thinking, oh, I'll just do a little scouting. And we got in there, and sure enough, he was bugling. And we had some great interaction, although I never came to full draw. Um his cows were 30 yards he was 70 in the oak brush so i never saw any of them but i could hear him i was talking back (laughs) and forth we heard a few and uh so uh, so we actually they bedded down and we backed out of there because that's a bull we're going to try and get on with you tomorrow crispy where the hard part is i was calling for myself so i'm calling them to me and they're holding up at you know 60 70 yards yep. where i can go back and hopefully call them up to where boom <laughs> i'm in that's the plan for tomorrow yeah that's a plan i'm, I'm in you, like i'm all for it yeah oh yeah
Well, this is Trevin, and I am back with an update. Unfortunately, Crispy and Lane are not with me. We did record a couple of podcasts, but we had some technical difficulties, and when we got back to the office, we realized we had nothing. So that's a bummer, because this was a hunt that uh, it was really special. Not just because we're in the elk woods in September, but because of the camaraderie, because of who we got to share it with. And I'm just going to bring you up to speed real quick on uh, Garrett and I actually hunted together most of the time. Crispy and Lane kind of tag teamed. And then sometimes we would work together and I would help to to call and uh, hopefully bring in a bull. We did get back into that same Aspen Alley area where Garrett and I had had an interaction with the bull and we called that uh, some cows and some bulls into probably within 30, 40 yards of Crispy. Crispy just needed that bull to take about three steps to pre- present a shot. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But it was a great encounter. Um, a day or so later, Garrett and I jumped kind of across the, the property to another area where we knew some elk were bedding. We had seen them, we'd glassed them from a high spot. And we moved in, but our whole plan was as the evening wore on, we knew those elk were going to come down from, from these, these pockets. Uh, That's the best way to describe it. These pockets of aspen and dark timber where they're bedded and down into the field below where there was definitely uh, their prime forage where they're feeding, but we didn't know what what the route was. So we, we just kind of stayed mobile. And what that allowed us to do is move laterally. And we did. We got, we got to a point to where we, the elk were funneling off through down this draw, down this ridge line, really, and then into a draw. And we got down into that draw and had an incredible, incredible encounter with a bunch of cows. And, um, and then I could hear the bull. The bull was coming. Actually, multiple bulls were coming. I made a mistake in the fact that I didn't come to full draw as the cows were funneling by. And I mean, they're not funneling by at 20, 30 yards. They're funneling by at eight yards. So uh, as they funneled by, I had a cow and a calf stop probably at six, seven yards. And, uh, And then I look up and I see more legs coming through and I did not come to full draw. And it was a, a bull, a legal bull. And he came through and stopped it about eight yards. And I'm not drawn. So the story, moral of the story is you are not going to get drawn when a bull's that close, no matter how sneaky you are or no matter how he looks away, which is what I tried to do. I tried to sneak the draw as he started to walk away, quartering away. I tried to come up very slowly and the first little movement he was, he was out of there. So that was pretty cool that uh, opportunity, that encounter. Um, Then later in the week, Lane and Crispy uh, set up in a blind where we had had quite a bit of elk going back and forth, kind of close to that blind. And sure enough, last light, a bull came in. I think Lane was actually calling to that bull they saw it at about 60 70 yards and that bull came on a string and this is a box blind it's not a pop-up blind and and um, it's actually the same blind that uh, ar who was with me last year killed his bull out of and um, 
Crispy had a great experience, even got to full draw, and, and unfortunately with the he was kind of trying to contort his body, and I, I just think it was there was a lot of factors going against um, against him at that at that point, and he was able to loose an arrow, but it was it was a little bit high, and no animals were harmed, of course. But the adrenaline was flowing, and what a great memory! So I'm trying to wrap up trying to wrap my mind around what happened next in this hunt to, to kind of bring you guys uh, and complete this this uh, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what exactly happened and and, and bring this hunt to a close um, we had some other encounters there again there was really nothing um, no shots no more shots fired and uh, it turns out we Crispy was going to stay an extra day, and then he had something on his schedule he didn't realize, so he had to actually bail a day early. And so we, um, Garrett and I, hunted one more morning, and 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 I'll be honest, it was it was awesome. Uh, I had an opportunity. Well, let me start. Let me set the scene. We decided to go ahead and work up on top of this big ridge where we knew these elk were working back and forth, and. Um, a lot of times these elk will stay on, that would be the south side, was where they'll bed. Um, well, in, in the draws on the south side of this ridge that runs east and west. Well, the last morning Crispy was there, we actually found that there was quite a few elk on the other side, on the north side. So we moved over that morning uh, after Crispy had left. We moved over up to that ridge and started to work down. We were hoping to, to catch something vocal and, and go from there. It really didn't didn't see much. We caught a few cows moving through some of the scrub oak and the oak brush, stuff like that. But we decided to work the, the end of the ridge out and glass on the north side. About 10.30, I happened to look down and I saw some cows. And then, you know, it's one cow, two cows. Then all of a sudden it's three cows, four cows, and then a bull steps out. And this is a good, mature uh, mature bull. And so we went down and down the ridge line. Again, they're 200 yards below us. Wind's perfect. Thermals are coming straight up. And we started to work down on them. And this is when it gets fun. It's just Garrett and I... We've got all the time in the, in the world. I say that. Of course, we did have to go back to camp and pack up and leave that day. But we were able to get down and work down as that bull with the one cow. And there was one only one cow that he was really interested in. And they worked up the ridge and uh, towards us. And we were like, oh, this might happen. So we popped up to Montana Decoy and, and we we're working down. to understand that it's really tough to work through the oak brush quietly as elk are coming up towards you with the Montana decoy. So we actually got into an area where you could see quite a bit of ground, pop that uh, Montana decoy up, and then use that um, kind of as a backdrop as we eased in. By, by now, this bull, who had been bugling occasionally, had shut up, and we figured they were bedded. We are actually thinking, okay, there's three for maybe five cows in this bunch. And we're going to, my whole methodology and thinking in this time is to move in as close as I can and maybe create the facade that I'm a, a cow that 
is just wandering in and, and you know maybe a small lost cow call he gets up to to check on me and offers a shot or last case scenario go in there and bust him up like i'm a bull coming in and and get that and so those are the two options but ideally i'm trying to get within bow range to where we think they're bedded and set up well, as, as, as the morning goes on and inch by inch we get closer, uh, Garrett and I realize that they're not bedded where we think they're bedded. They're actually lower. So uh, luckily we had had quite a bit of moisture um, the night before, and normally everything is just dry and crispy, and it sounds, oh, I said crispy. That's funny. Uh, it's dry and, and crunchy, I should say, the leaves and the, and the, and the brush and stuff, and it was really quiet. On this morning so we were able to even get down closer unfortunately there was more cows there was quite a few more cows there wasn't four or five there was more like 40 and as we moved down they were bedded to our left and I think they actually just saw us we were probably within 15 yards of, of them bedded and they jumped up well I initially as I as I will in a situation like that my go-to is to grab a bugle and scream because I'm trying to portray that image of elk being bumped out by another bull. And, of course, that's going to cause the bull to get up, hopefully bow up, and, and, and come into a situation where I have a shot. So I grabbed the bugle. I screamed, you know, as the best I could in the situation, as quick as I could after those uh, elk blew out of there. And it worked. We had elk circle all the way around us. And now the bull is frantically trying to stay with that one cow that she must have just come into heat. And he's back and forth, back and forth. But we have cow talk all, you know, you know, you know, all around us. It's really exciting. And I'm just trying to go, I just need a shot. I can see the bull. He's 30 yards. He's 40 yards. He's back and forth. But I, I can't ever get him to stop in a lane or get a clear shot. So we start moving along with the herd as they, the whole herd now kind of starts to uh, ease over to the east a little bit and down into a draw. And I'm just hoping as they move that I can get an opportunity. Well, it didn't work. Um, 10 minutes of this excitement. I'm, and I'm not I am not kidding you. It was 10 minutes long of moving with this herd and that bull back and forth. And then finally, I think some cows further on got a whiff of us, uh, you know, as they were circling and stuff. We, we kind of had, we were really lucky and fortunate with the wind. But I think the, the jig was finally up. Come to find out there was a whole another herd on the next ridge over, which is the way this elk herd headed. And there was another good bull in there. So it was, uh, there was a lot of elk on, on the north side where we didn't think they would be uh, on that morning. And it was awesome. Footage is good. Again, no shots were fired. But, I mean, that's the type of hunting that you think of, or at least I do when I think of hunting Colorado and the oak brush, is that close interaction. And sometimes it's calling and sometimes it's just moving into position, shadowing a herd. So that kind of wraps up this hunt. I can't stress enough how awesome it was to share a camp with Lane, Crispy, and Garrett. And to be able to hunt on with QRS, it, 
you know, the, the, the amount of animals is incredible. It was hot. It was tough. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, it, it was a tough year for vocalization. We were a little bit earlier than normal. Um, we, there were some muzzleloader hunters coming in the next week. Um, so we were, you know, we were we were making the most of the time that we had that we could be there. So, but it was fun. Great memory. Um, the footage is good. I'm 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 excited as to as to what we can possibly put together to help tell not just the story of this hunt, but the story of how hunting has really um, influenced Crispy with his recovery uh, from the injury, with his desire to help others recover too and his heart for people. And that's what's truly inspirational. That's all I got. Until next time, guys, go out, find your wild, embrace it. God bless, and we'll see you down the road.